0: good for our souls to sing about heaven and to contemplate the reality that we will experience when we enter those golden gates as victors. We look forward to that day. Well, let me ask you to turn to your Bibles once again to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, as we read, we'll begin in verse 11. I want to tell you, first of all, my wife is an amazing grocery shopper. If there is a spiritual gift of grocery shopping, she has it, which means if you're younger and needing some help on that, she could disciple you quite well. But she can walk into the grocery store, and she knows exactly what she wants and exactly which product to choose of the many options and where it's located in the store. I I walk in, I look at the endless options my head kind of spins, and I call her on the phone and say, which one do I get? Uh, But she knows exactly what she wants. She goes and decisively grabs it, puts it in the cart, and moves on. Well, this past Tuesday night, Lydia and I went out to dinner. And toward the end of the meal, I said, "Uh, is there anything that you need to do while we're out? And she said, well, I, I do need to pick up a couple things at the grocery store. Well, great, let's go so we get to the grocery store and she goes and picks up the things she needs but there was one thing that she typically buys that's on sale and it wasn't on sale at the time and so she said I can get it cheaper over at this other store and I said okay well do you want to go there tonight and she said no again this is Tuesday night she said the truck comes on Wednesday and they have better deal they have better selection and it's fresher on Thursday than it is on Tuesday night so not only does she know what stores have the best prices what Items are the best for our family with the best selection, but she even knows when the truck comes. I mean, it's amazing. In reality, though, she could go to one store and pick any one of all the selections, and and we would really be fine. We'd be okay, right? Uh, It's a luxury that we have so many choices, and yet we do try to get the better one, right? Right? Well, as we come to the book of Hebrews this morning, it actually has bearing on what we're talking about because we're looking at the fact that Jesus' priesthood is better than that of the Levitical priests. But it's not simply that His is better between two acceptable options, like the groceries. The priests in the Old Covenant were merely a shadow of what was to come Their sacrifices pointed forward to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. So, to those that uh, the writer of Hebrews is addressing that are tempted to turn back and revert to Judaism, that'd be a fatal mistake. Jesus is not only better, he alone is able to save. His priesthood alone can do the job. Every other approach to God ultimately will fall short. Now, last Sunday, as I said, we, we looked at, uh, uh, we, the title of the message was that mysterious Melchizedek. And what does it mean that Jesus became a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Now, as I said, Melchizedek came around five or 600 years before the Old Covenant was even established, before there was a Levitical priesthood. He served as the, as the priest of the Most High God. He came out to Abraham and blessed him and received tithes from him. And so the writer of Hebrews says that because of that, Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, which means he's also superior to the Levitical priests who all descended from Abraham. So chapter 7, verses 1 to 10, really are about Melchizedek primarily, not as much about Jesus, but now we come to see in verses 11 and following how that applies to Melchizedek. Our Lord Jesus. Now, I want to ask you to kind of put on your, your your thinking caps a bit, because this is a fairly detailed line of arguments of reasons why uh, Jesus is a better priest and the new covenant that He established is a better covenant. My title this morning is A Better Priest and A Better Covenant. And i tell you from the outset, I'm indebted to Richard Brooks in his well-win commentary for the, the headings, the outline of this uh, kind of dividing up the text. I found that very helpful. But he gives us six ways here in which Jesus is a better priest Of a better covenant. First of all, in verses 11 to 14, Jesus inaugurates a better priesthood. He tells us, first of all, the Levitical priest was inferior. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under the people receive the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? But the reality is, perfection was not attainable through that priesthood. Thomas Schreiner, in commenting on this verse, says, another priesthood would be superfluous if the Levitical priesthood could bring about the new creation and bring human beings to the heavenly city. So, it's clear the Levitical priesthood is inadequate. It doesn't truly and finally forgive sins and provide access to God. It doesn't transform human beings so they become righteous, and it doesn't restore the rule human beings lost when Adam sinned. In fact, in chapter 10, verse 4, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, you might ask, well, why did God even establish this Old Covenant Levitical priesthood if it could save no one? Why was there an Old Covenant? Well, there are two purposes we need to be aware of of the Old Covenant sacrificial system. One was to reveal what a serious offense sin is to a holy God. The constant flowing, uh, spilling of the blood of lambs and bulls and goats is a reminder of just how fatal, spiritually, sin is before a holy God. But secondly, (coughs) it provides for us a framework through which to understand the sacrifice and the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus. This old covenant sacrificial system and the priests were a type or a shadow of what was to come so that we might have a better understanding of the meaning of the cross. And we'll see some of that as we move on. Verse 11 mentions the uh, order of Aaron. Aaron was a uh, part of the tribe of Levi. He was one of the descendants. Not everybody who was descended from Aaron was, uh, excuse me, not everybody descended from Levi was also descended from Aaron. He was part of that. But in the, in the law, we find that Aaron and his sons are named high priests. And going down through history, the vast majority of the high priests in Israel were descendants of Aaron, Aaron. And so, we call it the Levitical priesthood, but it also can be called the Aaronic priesthood. But Jesus' priesthood is utterly different. It's new, and it is superior to the Old priesthood. Jesus was not a descendant of Levi or Aaron. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus would achieve for us a perfect human righteousness. His death and his resurrection would secure that righteousness for you and for me. We read later in Hebrews that all the priestly sacrifices could never take away sins, but they reminded men of their sins. They could never reconcile men to God, but rather they reminded men of the distance that they must maintain between God and man as the priest would go into the Holy of Holies through the veil, and and that veil was a strong warning to everyone else, keep out. You dare not enter into the presence of a holy God. But Jesus' atoning work represents a change in that priesthood, uh, a change from an ineffective priesthood that makes no one perfect to one in which he can say, it is finished. Jesus' new priesthood, his new covenant priesthood, ushered in a change in the law. Verse 12 through 14 tells us uh, when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. And it goes on. The the word law here, by the way, is the Levitical law. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about the laws of the Old Covenant surrounding the priesthood, the way they were appointed and how they'd operate. And it's not that Jesus is to be included among the priests, and it's also not that Jesus is the best among this group of priests. He alone is the legitimate high priest who can reconcile us to God. In chapter 9, verse 14, we'll read that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He is that intermediary that reconciles us to God. Now, Again, the old covenant required uh, a priest to be a descendant of Levi, but Jesus was descendant from Judah. He didn't come from Levi. He was from an entirely different tribe, and his priesthood was unique. It was not a Priesthood according to an order of Judah, because there were no priests from the line of Judah. But rather, it was according to the order of Melchizedek, as we looked at last week. So, he introduced a better priesthood. That's our first main point. The Second thing I want you to see is that Jesus is a priest by a better qualification. Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. In other words, that there's a need for a new priesthood. Who's become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life? In the Old Covenant, the qualification to be a priest was based on your genealogy, on your family tree. That's the legal requirement that's referred to here in verse 16. And by that legal requirement, Jesus was not qualified to serve as an Old Covenant priest. He didn't meet that requirement. He was a descendant of Judah, he was in the wrong tribe. But his genealogy was not the basis of his qualification. His qualification is, we read here, the power of an indestructible life. Again, verse 16. He became a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And again, we find him quoting once again Psalm 110 and verse 4, that he's a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want to make an important distinction here because Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, Uh, but we have no record of Melchizedek making sacrifices to provide atonement. His priesthood was expressed through blessing Abraham and receiving a tithe from Abraham. And in uh, verse 3 of chapter 7, it tells us that Melchizedek resembled the Son of God, and it tells us he was the king of righteousness. His name means, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem or the king of peace. Of course, Jesus established righteousness and is the prince of peace. It tells us he was without father or mother or genealogy. We have no record of his birth or of his death. That doesn't mean that he didn't actually have those. It means that he just appears on the scene according to the biblical account. So, Metaphorically speaking, he continues as a priest forever. That's metaphorically speaking. Our Lord Jesus was born, and he did die, but he conquered death. And his resurrection from the dead was vital to his atoning work. He is qualified to be the priest because he has an indestructible life. Death could not hold him. So he raised From the dead, he ascended to heaven. Chapter 4, verse 14, you remember, says, We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. That's a a fulfillment of that shadow, that picture of the priest passing through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Jesus passed through the heavens into the very throne room of God. So he has introduced a better. Priesthood. He has a better qualification for his priesthood. Thirdly, I want you to see that he, Jesus, introduces for us a better hope. Verse eighteen. On one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. See the whole covenant we read here is weak and useless. Now, I want to be careful that we understand the meaning of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, what he is saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that God made a mistake in establishing the Old Covenant. He's not saying God uh, gave something that was faulty or deficient. The Old Covenant was always, from its very outset, intended to point forward to the work of Messiah and to point forward to the New Covenant. But in and of itself, the Old Covenant... The sacrificial system was not sufficient to save anyone. So in that sense, it is weak and it is useless. And again, recognize the purpose of the writer. He's addressing believers, Jewish Christians, who are feeling pressure to return to the fold of Judaism, whether it's from family members, whether it's from the culture around them. They're, 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 they're feeling the pressure of a life Devoted to Christ. In in chapter 10, we see that some had their property seized. We see other persecution and challenges they endured. Some were put in prison. And so there was this temptation to to go back and just, just not continue to persevere any longer. And the writer says, in comparing these two priesthoods, this new and this old, these two covenants, he says, now that Jesus has paid for your sins, you have a perfect, great high priest. The old covenant can do nothing for you. Now that the, the, what the covenant, old covenant pointed to has been fulfilled, the old covenant is being done away with. It's being abrogated. And, and so he draws attention to the weakness and the inadequacy of that covenant and of that priesthood because no one has ever been justified through the blood of bulls and goats. Even Old Testament saints who in obedience to the law, made those sacrifices, they are justified through the blood of Christ looking forward. Those sacrifices anticipated or looked forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus himself. So this system of atonement established in the Old Covenant made no one perfect, fit no one for heaven. And again, the continual message under that system was keep your distance. You can't come near. You cannot come through the veil into the Holy of Holies unless you're the high priest. And only one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and only when all these other boxes and have been checked and all these other requirements have been fulfilled, and only when you've paid for your own sins first or made sacrifices for your own sin. And those sacrifices <coughs> had to be repeated year after year after year, sacrifices were being made day after day. So, the, the, the priestly ministry under the old covenant was, was hopeless. But the Lord Jesus introduces for us a better hope. Verse 19, the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Remember, in my introduction, I talked about the fact that in the grocery store, some products are better than other products. Some prices are better than others. Some grocery stores are better than other grocery stores. You have your favorite, I'm sure. But the reality is, whatever you choose, you'll be fine. We have that luxury. But that's not the case when we're talking about the covenant and the priesthood. Jesus is better than all the other priests of the old covenant. But it's not just that he's better. He is the one and the only great high priest. He alone brings the hope of eternal life. He alone can redeem us from sin. If your hope and your trust is not in Jesus, you have no hope. There is no hope for anyone who looks to the old covenant for salvation. Jesus alone redeems us from sin. Jesus alone qualifies us to draw near to God. Jesus alone rules and reigns on a throne of grace. Jesus alone lives forever. Jesus alone invites us to draw near, to approach that throne of grace with confidence, and Jesus alone promises to give mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Only Jesus can introduce us to any true hope. That is hope. So, the hope that, that He brings, that hope that is an anchor for our souls, comes from the Lord Jesus. He brings us a better hope. Well, the fourth way that Jesus is a better priest of a better covenant is that Jesus guarantee, guarantees or is the guarantor of a better covenant. Look at verse 20. Through 22, it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said, "The Lord has sworn and will not change: you are a priest forever." This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Again, the Levitical priests—they were qualified for the priesthood by their family connections, but again, as we've seen, that priesthood was weak and useless. It accomplished nothing of eternal value. Jesus' priesthood, on the other hand, was prophesied long ago, foreshadowed even 600 years before the Levitical priesthood. But then that priesthood of Melchizedek was interpreted to prophesy Messiah, as I said in Psalm 110. And where God says, I have sworn, chapter 6 tells us he's taking an oath, he swears by himself, and it is impossible for God to lie. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 17. <clears throat> So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, his saving purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, the oath and and himself, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. We draw near to God. No longer is the message, stay away. It's come near. Because God has sworn to give us refuge through that priestly work of his own son. And because it's impossible for God to lie, we have this hope as a sure and a steadfast anchor. Your salvation is not dependent upon your faithfulness, upon your perseverance, upon your good works. It is dependent entirely upon what the Lord Jesus has accomplished when he said it is finished. In Sunday school this morning, Pastor Mark was talking about uh, this, this mentality we have of uh, well, I don't commit big sins. I, you know, my sins are relatively small. I, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, if, 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 and he said if, if you have two people and, and uh, one scores 60 out of 60, or excuse me, if 60 out of 60 is, is, is a passing grade, if you get a 58, you're in no better shape than the guy gets a 38 because you both missed it. And I thought of, uh, it's like you have a, 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 a chasm that's 20 feet across, and it's 1,000 feet down. And one guy jumps 18 feet, and one guy jumps 6 feet. Who's in worse shape when they hit the bottom? Makes no difference, right? If you don't get all the way across, you get nowhere. And if we don't have a perfect righteousness, we have none. And only Jesus can give us that perfect righteousness righteousness. Only Jesus can give us a sure and steadfast hope. And our hope and our confidence is not based on anything you or I could ever do. It is entirely in what Christ has done for us, sealed in his own perfect blood. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. But I want you to see also his priestly ministry did not end on the cross when he said it is finished. It did not end when he raised from the dead and even when he ascended into heaven. His priestly ministry continues today. So we look at a fifth way that Jesus is a better priest and a better covenant. He carries on a better ministry today, even now. Verse 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There were many, many priests of the old covenant. There had to be many because they kept dying. And so they kept having to be replaced over and over. It was a temporary priesthood. But it's not only that every priesthood, every priest died. The Levitical priesthood itself eventually was abolished. In 70 AD, the Romans utterly destroyed Jerusalem. They, they destroyed the temple. And the priestly ministry, the sacrifices, ceased. And to this day, the temple is not in use. The sacrifices are not offered. And there is no Levitical priesthood. The priests died, and the priesthood has genuinely been abolished now judaism recognizes rabbis or teachers but they have no priests they have no priesthood the reality is apart from christ they have no hope but jesus conquered death He rose from the grave. He lives forever. In verse 16, it says he has an indestructible life. And verse 24 says because he lives forever, his priesthood is permanent. It's not simply that he is up in the glory of heaven living in eternal bliss. He is actively continuing his priestly service even now for everyone who comes to God through him. And this really is the climax of this text. Verse 25 The climax of his argument, where he says he is able, consequently, because of his indestructible life, because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, if you've hung with me up to this point, and I hope you have, I don't see anybody sleeping. If you are, you're hiding at will. Uh, And again, this this is kind of a technical walking through, but if you've hung with me, I'm guessing... That you probably did not say, when I woke up this morning, I was really eager to figure out how Jesus is a better priest than all the Levitical priests who died. That probably was not the first thought in your mind. And the reality is, it was much more relevant immediately to a Jewish Christian in that day when the temple sacrifices were still being given. That issue was more immediately relevant than it would be to us. It, It was something they could relate to. Because you and I are not considering a return to Judaism. So you might say, well, how is this passage relevant? Well, I'm glad you asked. And here's your answer. Verse 25. And I'm going to actually treat it in reverse order, if that's okay. First of all, it says he always lives to make intercession for us. There's a reason why he always lives to make intercession for us. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to see that this is telling you and me, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, Jesus is for us. And he's interceding for us. In Romans chapter 8, verses 32 through 34, we read, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. This is not a new thought to the writer of Hebrews. There's a common awareness among the early believers that Christ ascended to the throne and intercedes for us. So, far from bringing a charge against one of God's children, Jesus died to justify us so that no charge can stand. Far from receiving any accusation against us, He is for us, Jesus was raised to the de- from the dead. He was ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And to this very day, he is interceding for us. Our Savior, our great high priest, is never, can never be against us. You might ask, is there anything that Jesus cannot do? And I would say, yes, Jesus cannot, cannot be against us, his people, for whom he's the great high priest. He's declared us righteous through his own righteousness life and through his own death and destruction of death on the cross. So he can never be against us and he can never condemn us. He will never. He's for us. Richard Brooks in his commentary writes this he says Jesus interceding or praying in heaven for his people is the continuing the ongoing aspect of his high priestly work and is one of every true believer's richest consolations think of that one of our richest consolations is that Jesus intercedes for us the Calvary part is finished while this priestly part continues I'm reminded of the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. You remember Elkanah and his wife Hannah. He had another wife named Penina. Penina had a bunch of kids. Hannah had none. And Elkanah loved her dearly, but she was brokenhearted that she had no children. And so, they, they went to the temple, and Eli, the high priest, saw Uh, Hannah over there weeping and and her her lips were moving as if she was speaking but no sound was coming out and he concluded she must be drunk and he went and chastised her for being drunk in the presence of the temple now when she explained to him the the, the problem he quickly uh, quickly uh, uh, stepped back and in fact prophesied a year from now you will have a son and, and that was true But this good and godly and faithful high priest did not understand, did not know the struggle, the burden this dear woman was carrying. But you and I have a high priest who knows. He knows your heart. He knows about every struggle you face, and he prays for you. So, Christian, let me ask you, are you struggling with your own sin? Jesus is praying for you. Are you struggling uh, way down with a load of care? Jesus is praying for you. He knows all about it. Are you wrestling with temptation? He knows that too. And he was tempted in every way that you are, yet he never sinned. And he prays for, for you. Are you discouraged or maybe even struggling with some depression? Jesus understands. He knows it all, all about it. He prays for you. Are you feeling spiritually dry? Are you wrestling with unbelief? Jesus understands. He knows. And he prays for you, whatever may be weighing your heart down. Our Lord knows all about it, and he prays for you. Now, stop for a moment and just think, how many people do you pray for? Honestly, how many people do you pray for on a regular basis? Do you ever tell people, oh, I'll pray for you, and then you forget Uh, I would encourage you, if you tell somebody, I'll pray for you, pray for them right in that moment, whether you say, let's just stop and pray right now or as soon as they leave. But make sure you remember to pray for them at least then, okay? But we keep prayer lists to try to make sure that we don't forget people we ought to pray for. Our Lord Jesus doesn't need a prayer list. He never forgets. Not only does he not forget to pray for you, he knows exactly what to pray for you. He's omniscient. He knows everything about everyone. He's also infinite. Get this. You can only pray for one person at a time. Jesus can pray for every single one of his children all at the same time, exactly how they need it. I don't know how that's possible. We talked about the mysterious Melchizedek. We have a mysterious Christ, don't we? Because he's God. He prays for us. Every single minute of every day. That's, that's a precious reality that the Lord Jesus always lives to make intercession for you if you are his child. That should be a great encouragement to your heart. Sometimes we feel like under heavy load, nobody seems to understand. Maybe people know about it. Maybe they express interest or concern, but they, but they can't possibly understand what you're actually experiencing. But Jesus does. He he was a man of sorrows. He was familiar with suffering. He was tempted every way you and I are yet without sin, and he is omniscient. He knows it all. He's rich in compassion, full of mercy, and he prays effectively for you. Eternity alone will reveal the fruit of our Lord's prayers for us. And because he intercedes for us, the first part of the verse tells us, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Now, what does this word, what does this phrase mean? He is able to save to the uttermost. It means, as we read in Philippians 1 6, he is able to complete the work he has begun in you. He's able to bring about true perfection. He redeemed us. He justified us. He's in the process of sanctifying us, and it's not finished yet. But it's a guarantee that it will be complete, and ultimately, we will be glorified in heaven, and we will receive perfect, glorified bodies, and we will be utterly sinless. Perfection will be completed in his people. In Romans 8, verse 29, it tells us that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's what he's about doing. And it goes on and it talks about those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Now, we know that glorified or glorification happens when we get to heaven. That hasn't happened yet. But in Paul's mind, it's so absolutely certain that he speaks of it in past tense as an accomplished fact. And the reason it is so certain, is because on the cross, Jesus said it's finished, and it was but also because he prays for us, he intercedes for us to actively bring about the completion of the work he has begun in us. Christian, this is good news. We talked in Sunday school about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. This is part of the gospel. This is part of the good news of our priest, the Lord Jesus, who not only redeems us, but who intercedes or prays for us. It ought to encourage your heart. Jesus really is a better priest of a better covenant. The final, the sixth way that this is a reality is that Jesus possesses a better character. Look at verse 26, if you would. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He was a spotless lamb without blemish. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. The Levitical priests were sinners, just like you and I are. So before they could offer a sacrifice for anybody else's sins, they had to offer a sacrifice for their own. They, could not be, they were not equipped to serve as a priest until their own sins were addressed. Jesus had no sins to address. The Levitical priests were flawed men, however godly and however faithful they may have been. They were still sinful. They were still imperfect. And they needed cleansing. But our Lord did not need a sacrifice for his own sins. He had none. He is the sinless Son of God. Verse 26 tells us he was holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He is the spotless, flawless, sinless. Lamb of God, the great high priest who offered for all time a sacrifice for our sins. But he was also the sacrifice that was offered. There are some who refer to the death of Jesus as Christ the victim, Christ the priest. I'm not a big fan of that statement. It makes an important truth that Jesus was not only priest, but he was the sacrifice. But the idea of victim has the, has it, it has the, the connotation of helplessness. Nobody chooses to be a victim, at least not in that sense. But Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I, I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And he freely offered himself when they came to arrest him. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. And it really, in the, in the Greek text, it's literally, I am. And at that moment, this, 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 this horde of soldiers and, 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 and guards fell to the ground at the declaration, I am, in the presence of God the Son. They fell to the ground. Jesus stood there and waited for them to get back up and said again, whom do you seek? And Jesus, and he said, I told you I am. And he Gives them his hands, and they they lead him away. And when they put him on trial, it was a a bogus trial. And you recall the most brilliant minds of the day would come and try to test Jesus, and it was very easy for him to respond to their accusations. And they'd walk away scratching their heads. I remember the cartoon character who was always trying to do the wrong thing, and he'd get get, uh, overcome, and he would walk away going, Curses foiled again. And I think of Jesus' opponents saying that over and over again. But when it came time for his trial, he said nothing. He did not defend himself at all. He was silent as a sheep before her shearers. I think one of the reasons, humanly speaking, is if he'd made a defense, they would have not been able to continue with their evil deed but he willingly laid down his life. He was no helpless victim. He was a willing sacrifice. That is the reason Jesus came to this earth. That is why he took to himself human flesh and came to live among us, that he might fulfill the law perfectly and establish not just perfection as God, but a perfect human righteousness, learning obedience through what he suffered. We read earlier in Hebrews. But then also that he might die on the cross and bear in his body the punishment for our sins and experience the totality of the wrath of God that we deserved. So, unlike the Levitical priest, he had no sins of his own to pay for, <clears throat> meaning the benefits of his death can freely flow to you and to me. But his sacrifice also never needs to be repeated. The old covenant calls for daily sacrifices day after day blood was spilt and the ritual was com- continued year after year the day of atonement was observed and the bull or the goat was slaughtered and the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and year after year the ceremony had to be carefully repeated and yet it never took away a single sin from a single sinner but when jesus died on the cross he cried out it's finished Once and for all, our sins were completely paid for. The righteous requirements of an offended God were truly satisfied. He gave himself to be a propitiation for our sins. That means he satisfied the wrath of God. Past sins, present sins, future sins, all paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus. That's an amazing reality. It says here that (coughs) Jesus was separated from sinners and that he's been exalted into the heavens. And yet, this great high priest, separated from sinners, exalted to the heavens, invites us to draw near. He is called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. He's promised that he will never leave us and never forsake us. He invites us to draw near to his throne of grace. This is a new covenant benefit, and it's utterly different from what we find in the old covenant that says, keep your distance. Do not enter upon pain of death. Jesus says, draw near. Receive mercy and grace to help. Now, we cannot see him. We cannot touch him. But we can enjoy a sense of his favorable presence as we walk with our Lord. You may not always experience that, but we have those moments we know the presence and the sweetness of fellowship with Christ. He's separated from sinners, but he is near to his children. Well, there's one final contrast we find in verse 28. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. The law, or the old covenant, the word of the new covenant, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Those priests were not perfect They were weak men. They were not perfect. They could make no one perfect. But that word of oath that came later, that replaced the provisions of the old covenant, it was an oath given by God himself, and it's impossible, we see, for God to lie. And this oath appoints a man, but not just any man, the man Christ Jesus, a son. Not just any son, the Son of God, who is God, who took on to himself human flesh. And as a man, he became perfect forever. Now, again, I said earlier, he was perfect from all eternity as God. But in human flesh, he perfectly obeyed the law. He <clears throat> perfectly met all of the righteous requirements of the law. He achieved for us, his people, a perfect human righteousness. And then he bore the sins of his people on the cross, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus. He made him sin for us. Our sins were accounted to him. He was treated as if He were guilty for our sins. He was imputed to Him, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness is imputed to us. We are rewarded as if we had been as perfectly righteous as Jesus. And when he died, he conquered sin. He rose triumphant over sin and over death. And so Jesus became the great and the perfect high priest who continues forever. So let me ask you, do you know my Jesus? Do you know this high priest? Jesus died to secure such a great salvation. God went to such great lengths to provide, to establish redemption. Let me ask you Young person, adult. We heard this morning in Sunday school a grown man saying, I think I was converted just a few weeks ago. Do you know Jesus? Have you put your faith and your trust in him? Is he your refuge? Because there is no other name among men by which we must be saved. There is no other priesthood. There is no other refuge that will give us life that is life. There is no other mediator between God and man. And there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. But he is an anchor for our souls. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He invites you. If you're not in Christ, if you're not sure you're in Christ, come to him. Put your faith and trust in him. If you need to talk to somebody about that, we're here. We'd be delighted. Any one of our elders, any one of our members would be delighted to speak with you. About these things. Kids, talk to your mom and dad about these things. Or us. We're, we want you to know Christ. And finally, Christian, are you struggling <clears throat> in any area? Whatever, whatever it may be. Does it seem like nobody else really gets it? Nobody, nobody understands. They say they care, but, but how can they really care? Jesus knows all about it. <clears throat> Jesus understands your pain. He understands your sorrow. He understands your isolation. He understands your loneliness. He understands your disappointment. He understands your guilt and your sorrow. He understands all of it. He knows all about it, and he prays for you even now, even now. As you sit there in your seat, hearing the word, he prays that the word will be effective in your life, bearing fruit for eternity. Jesus Christ is the better priest, of a better covenant. He is what your soul needs. He is the solid rock on which we stand, the anchor for our souls.